Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode eight of Renaissance Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Martin Burns, joined this week uh, by a very special guest, an old friend of mine, Anam Rahman, who is founder and CEO of Kavida AI. Um, welcome, Anam. How are you? Delighted to be here, Chris. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Um, so just for a bit of context, listeners, um, Anam and I met I'm going to say like seven or eight years ago. Has it been that long? Maybe. It's been something like that. Anyway, um, Anam joined the firm I worked for at the time um, out of university. You just graduated, I think. Yeah. Um, And yeah, started as a young whippersnapper, um, eager to get on and learn about business and try and make things happen in the startup world and all of a sudden fast forward to where we are now and you are leading um by all accounts a pretty successful um tech startup Kavida um and they're doing some pretty amazing things um so how did that happen, Anam? Like, what happened in what happened since we met? Like, what was the journey that got you from there to here? Um, yeah, just tell us about that. Yes, um, it's been it's been quite a ride. So, Chris, you probably remember at the time when we were working together. Um, it was then that I actually stumbled across. So, we're in 2019. I stumbled across some research looking at all of these issues in food supply chain in the developing world. And an academic had presented me a thesis about food supply chain risk. We're in 2019 yeah, at this time. And the thesis was pretty simple. Supply chains have become globalized and cheap, therefore vulnerable, and disruption events were happening more frequently. The idea was an earthquake in one side of the world could lead to starvation on the other side of the world. Now, back in 2019, this was quite a novel idea or just a concept or a piece of research. So I remember reading it, looking at it, and for some reason I couldn't let it go. I couldn't drop it. And it just kept nagging me because it was almost too obvious to be true. So just out of sheer curiosity, I then take it to five of the largest food companies in the UK. I sit with their heads of procurement. And I just show them this, this research and I pitch the idea to them. What are you doing about your food supply chain risk? Anything could happen. You could have natural disasters. You could have political issues. You could have biological outbreaks. Yeah. And in 2019, everybody shut the door in my face and told me they weren't interested. I remember one head of procurement, I won't name him, but he literally got up in the room and said, do you even know what you're talking about? So feeling deflated at the time after everyone telling me, no, I put it down and I, I move on. Then it gets to about December and I start getting a few emails from, from these guys. It gets to January and I'm getting more emails. It gets to February and it gets to March. By March 2020, global supply chains had completely collapsed. Europe is shutting down. France, Italy, Spain. The UK is next. We know it's coming. We're about five days out from lockdown. Everybody's preparing. At the mm-hmm. time, you might remember Boris is fighting for his life. Yeah. Hospital. yeah, fucking um, <laughs> Seems like a long time ago now. Is a mental period. It was like the world was going to come to an end. Yeah. So 
Um, and COVID had just pushed 250 million people to the brink of starvation. At the time, I thought, oh, wow. I know more about this issue than everybody else because I had stumbled across six months ago. It's mm. now or never. So you probably remember I left our, our last firm and just went all in. And I yeah. set up a volunteer AI community, COVID19foodsupply.com. The goal was to mobilize AI volunteers to help alleviate the issues in food supply chain. 300 people applied because all this AI talent is on furlough. I spoke to about 200 or 100 the week before lockdown. And I remember just picking up the phone, just asking people, do you want to be involved? Do you want to be involved? Mm-hmm. Then we get to about 40, 40 volunteers that said, yes, we believe in the mission. We want to make a contribution. And it was through that process there that I met my co-founder, Sumit, who was the best engineer by a long way from everyone that I'd spoken to. And I had uh, met our first early employees. And then from there, we make a lot of noise on social media. Suddenly mm-hmm. now like a couple of weeks i'm getting calls from big financial institutions big asset managers asking if we can help we raise our first round of capital about six months later and then since then we've raised two rounds of capital and we have a solution to this enormous problem which is supply chain company okay so i mean it's it's massive what you're trying to tackle um we can get into the details of that. Um, but what, like, I want to understand, like, or let the listeners understand as well, like, what really drives you? Like, it's, it's, a, it's a big leap, especially for as young as you were and still are, to, like, to start your own thing, to take all this on. You were always ambitious and always very smart. Um but like, how is this always been something that you wanted to do, like since childhood? Like, has it? Have you always been driven to be a leader and or to solve problems? Like, how? Talk us through your story a bit um, from an earlier age, so we can understand like the mentality behind, you know, what it takes to what took what it took you to do this. I didn't drive financially the best part I remember being young and there were traumatic memories uh, of poverty. Yeah. And it's in the UK, you know, we're not in Sub-Saharan Africa, but I mean, there stop, were... stop. Yeah. So I guess, Chris, the, the answer to your question is I didn't grow up in financially the best backgrounds. There was... Uh, moments in my childhood etched into my mind of the difficulties growing up poor. My parents, first generation immigrants. Uh, my dad is a taxi driver. My mom is a cleaner. I, to my own estimations, I've probably grew up in the bottom 10% socioeconomically in the UK. And that then from a, a very early age just leads you to hustle. You know, I was mm. that kid at school that was selling sweets and drinks. Mm. Uh, I started my first business when I was 19 in my university dorms. My second business when I was 20. By 21, I had a business selling life insurance from my university dorm. <laughs> so I think the, 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 the trauma of the upbringing um, definitely made an impact on what I wanted out of life. I remember, I remember being 19 and meeting a 22-year-old at that time who started a business at he was making close to twenty to thirty thousand dollars a month, hmm. and for me, 
exact moment there I realized that everything I had been taught about having a career and university and you know nine to five all of that were that was fed to me by teachers by parents all of that in that moment when I met this person was just thrown out the window Mm -hmm. it was it was just a lie it was a different path there was the path of entrepreneurship so that then leads to leads to trying to trying to hustle and make build businesses now the problem is is um entrepreneurship is very hard and it takes a very very long time before you see any success i i view it as a craft Mm -hmm. a craft just like a carpenter Mm -hmm. and there's the law that you have to do your ten thousand hours to become world-class I, I view it in the same way yeah and through those long periods of putting the time into learning the craft and failing eventually if you keep knocking at the door one of your ideas might work yeah and that's what happened okay um so when you when you when you met Summit and founded Kavita, um, where did you start with figuring out? I mean, where did I mean? Did where did you start in terms of like okay, what industries can we talk to? Maybe even what governments can we talk to? Like, how how do we make people who already understand a, an issue, which is obviously brought into further um further light by covid at the time how did you start to think about who you were going to go after as potential customers like even doing proof of concepts for people was was there a strategy around how like who you were going to who you were going to start working with or what regions you were going to start working with or was it like let's just test this and get as much data as possible how did where did you go to start with yeah so i'll tell you the first part of the story and how i met um because this is a good story how you meet your your co-founder yeah um we had made all of this noise on social media and now suddenly we're getting messages from massive financial institutions with billions of dollars worth of assets under management and they're worried about their portfolios mm-hmm. and one of these massive institutions had arranged a call with one of their portfolio companies now, I was due to take that call mm. with, uh, with somebody else. And at the very last minute, literally like 60 seconds before the call, mm. it dawned on me that I actually don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and that I know, nothing, I know nothing about supply chains. Yeah. And that this person that was supposed to take the call, the person that was supposed to take the call with me. So we had the C-suite there. So imagine we had the, the investors from the financial institutions. Yeah. And then we had the C-suite of the portfolio companies, the VP of supply chain. Um, and then the person that was supposed to take the call with me was an expert. He pulls out like 15 minutes before. And like, oh, wow, this is, this is going to end horribly. And <laughs> I, I kid you not, I kid you not, 60 seconds before the call. By this point, me and Sumit had only had one conversation before. 60 yeah. seconds before that call, I rang Sumit out of sheer desperation to say, <laughs> can you jump on the call and help? And then he said, yeah, I'm not doing anything. I'll jump on the call. And we get onto the call and he smashes it out of the park as if he's been doing this for like 10, 15 years. 
Yeah. And it was at that point where I just knew, I just knew that this is the person I'm going to found a company with. And then the, the very next day I go see him in uh, Warwick. He's just finished off his PhD. Mm. And then uh, we come to a verbal agreement and then we get the paperwork signed. So that was a, that was a moment where I just knew. Now, in answer to how we figured out a market, man, it's a painful, painful journey. Yeah. We knew that we were more obsessed with just solving the problem. We knew that there was a problem with supply chain resilience. Mm. So we had to figure out who had the biggest problem. And in the early stages, I mean, the first maybe six months, we were trying to get as many conversations as possible from as many different parts of the value chain, whether there's commodity traders, retailers, manufacturers, from as many different parts of the world as possible to figure out who's complaining most, who mm. has the biggest problem. And then for some reason, we started getting a lot of a lot of feedback coming in from garment manufacturers in Sri Lanka. Right. And it's like, okay, these guys are complaining the most. And after we raised our first round of capital, I then go spend a year, year and a half there um, in two spells. And that starts the journey of figuring out who we're going to sell to, who's complaining the most, have as many conversations as possible, who's complaining the most. That creates a hypothesis that, and the hypothesis was, okay, manufacturers have the most amount of complexity because they have hundreds of suppliers. They have to mm -hmm. deliver on time. And it's garment manufacturers that, because they're so low cost, they source from anywhere and everywhere. Um, and that opens up all of their exposure. But that's where it started. And then as we went down the rabbit hole, we got our first customers in garment manufacturing. But what we found was that actually the, the bigger opportunity is with industrial manufacturers in this part of the world, in the UK. The UK is the ninth largest manufacturer in the world. And we have a globally competitive automotive, electronics industry and um, <clears throat> chemicals industry. And what we found is that it's, it's the manufacturers in this side of the world, literally at home, mm -hmm. that have a bigger appetite for risk management and technology. So yeah. even though the, the, the manufacturers in the other side of the world had a bigger problem, because they had low levels of risk management, maturity and digital maturity, the pull to buy wasn't there. Yeah. But on like the perfect balance of having the biggest problem and the wanting a solution in this part of the world. So we had, we literally traveled all around the world to come to the conclusion that the market was actually at home this entire time. <laughs> um, and that, as you say, is, is that purely because of buyer appetite, buyer knowledge? Is it because people have higher costs in the UK? Like they have more to lose if things don't go well? Um, is it their margins are slimmer? Like what's the, what's the main pull? Is it, is it just knowledge of technology? Yeah, I think it's, uh, one I would say is um, Asia is, the manufacturing that happens in Asia is, in large parts of Asia, is, is low-cost manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And that then impacts the way that they run those companies, the attitude they have towards technology. Mm -hmm. Everything has to be saving them money. If it's not saving them money, they're not interested. It has to be so clear. I buy this, I save this amount. Risk management, it isn't a terminology that they use in, in the parts of Asia that we've been in. It just doesn't happen. So that then impacts technology, this buying decisions, and even though they have the biggest problem. 
But when we came to this part of the world, we saw that automotive and industrial manufacturing here, the complexity is there, which is a big criteria for how big your problem is. How many global suppliers do you have? Um, the attitude towards risk management is a broad level priority. Mm -hmm. The need to mature in digital transformation is here. So it was, it was a combination of all of those things um, that led to, led to us now focusing on here. Right. And what kind of app, what, I mean, where did you start with that? Like, I, I think, did you, did you start approaching big manufacturers for, or big companies in general for pilot projects? Um, was that the yeah, first step? One of the big challenges that nobody tells you about is with, with enterprise software is there is right. such a high bar for your minimal sellable product. Right. Because in supply chain, this is 50 to 60% of their revenues tied up in their supply chain. They cannot mm. afford a system or a piece of software to collapse to not be working. It better be almost perfect before they even test it. So Asia proved to be our testing ground. It proved to be where we were able to iterate the technology, understand user requirements, et cetera, and build the product and the team. And then we came to this part of the world and Sumit's um, PhD was actually in uh, automotive manufacturing. Mm -hmm. so we had a lot of knowledge in this area and we then, we knew the size of the market was massive. There's 250,000 manufacturers in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, the real catalyst was when we won um, the innovation contest from the Digital Catapult and they were running four big contests. One of those was on supply chain visibility for automotive parts industry. Um, we beat 40 other companies. It was the most competitive call. And that validated that the we were right about the market. It's, it's mm. automotive parts and it's in this side of the world and they have a massive problem. That they then brought in, so we won that contest, they gave a chunk of money, they saw that the product was almost there. They brought in two early adopters to work with us um, to iterate the tech, the final tweaks for their requirements. And now we're in the process of finishing off those tweaks to run those uh, pilots in, in Jan. And then if we're successful, there's, we've identified 10,000 other manufacturers that have the exact same requirements as these companies. So that's been the, that's been the journey. Asia was a testing ground. Mm. And we've got our launch pad from Digital Catapult here um, to, to run the tech. Nice. And uh, how did you go about, I mean, how, how, did, how, how did you scale your team? um like along this journey like uh, where did it go from just you and submit to a wider a wider team how did you find them how did you put that together like how much of a challenge was that in regards to how, like having the resources to even employ people like how like, it, that that must have been one of your biggest problems like early on probably may, maybe still is um it's a, it's a really good question because hiring and team building in a startup is completely different to any normal company. Yeah. Um, and then, and then to, to do that with such little resources, like the resourcefulness you need to show. So me and Sumit met, and then we get our first employ, uh, early employees from the, uh, from the volunteer community, about two mm. or three that, that, uh, that we hire after our first round of capital. But there's, there's these, small group that are still working on this without getting paid for like the first six months. And then we take two or three of them full time after we raise our first round. 
But then we raised our first round and our first round was only just under half a million dollars. It's not a lot of money. And then since then, altogether, we've raised about one and a half million dollars. It's still not a lot of money. You can't build out a team um, with that kind of cash in, in, in this part of the world, in the UK. Mm. So we're very fortunate that because we got a lot of traction, we understood the, firstly, the Indian market really well, the engineering market, because of Sumit's background, we were able to right. hire there really well. And actually, not just hire um, outsourced dev teams. We actually hired teams and built a cohesive engineering team that was working together um, based out of India. And our initial go-to-market team was based out of Sri Lanka. So that, that was what a learning curve on, on team building and, and hiring. I would say the, the biggest thing, and we're now, we're now, we've now have UK employees after three years or so, but after, in the early stages, when you're building out your team, you firstly you can't afford talent that's been there and done that mm. that's costing way too much money you don't have the capital for that and why would they join your little company that nobody's right. heard when being there done that talent is is in demand mm. so you have to take a bet on potential mm-hmm. on the diamond in the rough and that's mm-hmm. the real skill is to be able to see that potential in in talent in talent that doesn't have the CV, that doesn't have the experience, and you have to be able to test for it in all different ways. And you've got to take a bet on them and then put them into very difficult situations and see if they sink or swim. Yeah. I mean, you, you've got to be prepared to mentor and nurture them in a, in a different way. Like that, that's a whole, and that's a whole other skill in itself. Um, so how do, I mean, how, was there a lot of failures within that or did you pick well? Um, we so we have an unbelievably low turnover rate for, for our engineers. That's and great. I think that's a testament. That's a testament to um, to Sumit and the engineering leadership that we have in place. Um, and we have we've made mistakes in go to market hires, which I think are harder in the early stages. Mm. But if you if you ask me now, the the team that we have, I couldn't be more proud and, and happier. And it's it's. It, you have to have go-getters. You have to have go-getters that have a chip on their shoulder. This is mm-hmm. really big. They have a chip on their shoulder. They have something that they've got to prove. I remember yeah. Jürgen Klopp interview. I remember Jürgen Klopp interview about how he builds teams. And he says he looks for players that have a chip on their shoulder. They have something to prove. And it's so true in startup hiring. You need mm. people that have something to prove for, for themselves. And they view your company as a way to accelerate their career if they do a great job the company grows so they're able to two three promotions in such a short period of time because they're put into such difficult difficult circumstances and they figure it out that's the hard bit the ability to figure stuff out yeah um so talking about supply chains more broadly like you talked about covid as obviously a major turning point if you like in risk management um have you seen actually a major shift since then now that we've got more back to normal or have you seen like have you seen people kind of continue to ignore risk management and hope that something like that doesn't happen again and taking into account other events 
the war in Ukraine, um, many others. Like, how, I mean, how like when things like this happen, do you get busier, um, or or is there more of a preventative attitude from people now, where they're taking steps to put in place processes involving you, whereby if things like this do happen, they're prepared? Or is it still reactionary? Um, it's reactionary now with an appetite to change, to be proactive. And the appetite has, has, has now come because there has been a, an understanding that the previous 20 to 30 years of globalization is no longer what the next 10 to 20 years is going to look like. In the last 20 years, the world just worked. Goods just flowed from A to B with not that many issues. And that then creates these very efficient operating models like lean and just in time. Mm -hmm. where you can carry such minimal inventory. You can operate on such tight deadlines. And then you carry less inventory, your balance sheets look great, etc. What the pandemic showed us is that we have ushered into a new operating environment that is here to stay. One that is characterized by chaos and instability, whether it's Russia, Ukraine, China, USA, China, Taiwan. It's just a never ending list of things that are now going wrong. Mm. We're entering this new area of globalization 2.0, where the new normal is chaos and instability. You often hear the term VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Now, the problem. The problem is the systems and the tools and the processes that we have to manage our supply chains were built for the old operating environment and they've collapsed under this new environment. And this new environment, there's a great graph by the New York Federal Reserve Bank measuring global supply chain pressures. Mm. Things may have calmed down temporarily, but the volatility is there. It takes one big macro event which is now happening more frequently. And now suddenly pressure in supply chains goes through the roof and then it'll calm down and then pressure goes through the roof and then it calms down and there's another war and then it calms down. So that volatility is now there. Mm. Companies don't have the processes, the technology, the risk management to deal with that. And what it's costing them is huge. The winners in this new, the winners in this new game are going to be those companies that build superior risk management capabilities. Because when big shocks do happen, market boundaries will move more in a three-month period under instability than they will under a 10-year period of stability. The ability to grow massively happens when all of your competitors are disrupted because they weren't prepared for that big shock. Yeah. Oracle did a great study that found 80% of U.S. consumers would switch brands due to a delay or shortage. Mm -hmm. So if you're not getting your goods in and you're not fulfilling your demand, you're going to lose your customers and your customers may never return. That's the big risk. Mm -hmm. Think about how many things just as consumers that um, we've tried to order that haven't been there, that we've gone to an alternative. How many times have we gone back? We, the risk is we may never go back. So market share moves. Yeah. Well, you can, you very easily, consumers have a short memory. You get onto a new product, a new brand, and then all of a sudden that's the one you use. Exactly. Um, 
there's no there's very, there's very little loyalty in consumer goods it's crazy how like the expectations on consumers now through the roof we expect mm. things to be here the next day we expect it to be available when we want it to be available if it's not i'm going somewhere else customer expectations are through the roof and yet your ability to fulfill that demand isn't as responsive as it needs to be right it's not aligned to the customer expectations right <clears throat> so you were, I want I want to give you some kudos so you you raised capital earlier this year in was that your third round second round third round exactly yeah second second in a very difficult environment we've seen a lot of companies go well struggle this year in the last kind of 18 months particularly raising capital it's been a difficult environment everybody knows that um but you managed to fight through that and overcome it did you actually find it more difficult this year did you see that or does it speak to the strength of your tech and your team that it was actually quite a straightforward process raising capital is never easy <laughs> it's never easy. it's a slog every single time and it hurts it's, it's just yep. so painful um but the the environment so for large parts early stage markets have been more insulated against the disruptions than later stage markets. That's one thing. So great time to be a seed stage company now, horrible time to be a growth stage company, mm. really bad time to be in growth stage. That was one thing. Second thing is a lot of these companies that like the web three companies, yeah. the web three startups, the crypto startups, all of these companies, they just won't exist. And this was this was that turning point where mm. taking a bet on, on these crazy ideas for the future as opposed to something that is solving a problem right now, a yeah. mission critical issue right now. If you're doing if you're doing that, you're gonna be fine. I'm not worried about um about our ability to raise or um the state or the venture markets yet because we're growing. And we have customers that have this enormous problem. For as long as we continue to fulfill our customer requirements, we'll be able to raise. Yeah. Um, so the, oh no, the other big thing was now capital efficiency is back in fashion. And mm. I think it will be back in fashion for a long time. Your mm. ability to do a lot with a little. Yeah. Markets are going to, investors are going to reward those, those types of companies. The ability to do a lot with a little and yeah is one thing that we're really good at. So we're going back to markets are now going back to rewarding real entrepreneurship, if I'm honest, mm. it's, it's, it's the real hustle it's the resourcefulness it's the ability to solve a problem right now, rather than building something very abstract for the future. The challenge is yeah. doing both. The challenge is yeah. solving a customer problem right now while you build for the future. Yeah, <clears throat> I was talking about this a few weeks ago um with a previous guest and yeah it's like the cat he, he was terming it the camels get rewarded the people who can hold water and still walk through the desert like at times like this and as you say be show a very mature attitude to capex and saving doing a lot with less um those are the ones that survive as well as having a good solution um so you know what's crazy chris is 
now we've been on this journey for three years. The amount of companies that I've seen that started roughly about the same time, yeah. they had gone on, they, in their seed round, they, they attracted big investors that wrote big checks, several millions of dollars, seed, seed stage. Then they're not around anymore. They're not around. And the founders have left to go start other companies. And I was thinking, what? How? How did you end up in this situation? You've raised mm. millions and you're nowhere to be seen in. Like, what did you there's do? Some crazy, there's, there's some crazy stories. I mean, like people who have literally raised hundreds of millions at like at A and B, and then they're just gone. Like, and now they're, now they just go, like you say, just go and start a new thing. It's like, where did that money go? Like you raised from like big institutions, big institutional capital, hundreds of millions of dollars. All of a sudden it's fucking gone. Like what just happened there? It doesn't make, it doesn't, it makes no sense. Agreed. Completely agree. Like, how, how did you end up in that, that situation? But I think one of the other challenges is um, when you get, when you, when you raise such a large amount, it's, it's coming from funds that have allocated a part of their portfolio to ultra high risk. Yeah. So you'll write the check and, but they will demand that they'll write the huge amounts of money at a crazy valuation, but yeah. they will demand growth at all costs. This is, going to go to the moon or it's going to die yeah um, but they're prepared if it does die they don't care like they just but i find the bigger the fund the bigger the institution the more eager they are to write a check to make a decision to just like deploy the capital um because it doesn't mean as much like they they find an idea that they think is good enough they find some metrics that they think are good enough in a company that they think is hitting some good milestones they don't do enough risk analysis of what might happen in that market or really do enough diligence. No one does enough diligence and no one's prepared to operate. No, like big funds like that rarely get involved and actually help operate and grow companies. They just write some checks and one of them will fly. The rest of them, it doesn't really matter if they do or not. Um, here's, here's the challenge with, with raising, raising big VC money is we've got, we've got a, a VC on, on our cap table, but we've only got one. Yeah. A lot of our capitals come from corporates and it's come from angels mm. and it's given us a lot of autonomy in, in being able to figure out this hard piece on product market fit and go to market fit. Mm. Now, had we had raised from a fund, the pressure to figure those things out much earlier, much quicker, and then grow, the wheels would have fallen off. Yep. There's this brilliant Gary Tan quote where he said um, something along the lines of to build something enormous in the early stages, you have to move like a cockroach. Mm. And what he's saying there is early stage, don't just get the foundations right. You don't, you don't need to make noise. You don't need to be seen. You don't need to be getting up on stage and doing all of these things, get your foundations right. And then you can grow from there. Mm. The challenge raising large VC money at such an early stage is we have to grow. We don't care yeah. if the wheels are going to fall off. Yeah. Do you see yourself bringing in VCs later on? Like, or is that going to be something that you avoid? I would like to bring in VCs onto our board that I truly admire and respect. And the challenge is, um, I think a lot of VCs that I've met till now don't have a lot of operating experience. 
Um, that's that's one challenge. So I would I would want someone on our board that can really really help grow the company. We will raise VC money. You can't avoid it. When you get to a certain point, when you figured out product market fit and go to market fit, and you're ready to scale, you can't avoid those large amounts of capital that you need to grow. Yeah. I just want to raise it from the right person. If I'm going to be told how to grow the company, then I've really got to admire and respect you. And if I do, then yeah, I'm looking forward to building a great company with you. I have a feeling you already know the person. I do, I do, I do, I do. So I've got, I've got names. I've got names in my head. And this is really interesting because because it changes the way you raise because you've got a small number. You've got a small number is yeah. I want that person on our board. I want yeah. that person to invest. Um, and yeah, there's all of this capital out there, but I don't particularly like these people or I, I don't, I don't truly admire them. But this, this small number of people, I admire you so much and what you've done and what you've achieved and the companies you've helped build. I want you to help us build a similar company. And it, it changes the, the way you think about raising capital. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's the, it's 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 there to help grow your company. You, you know, you don't build a company to raise capital. Mm. Yeah, agreed. So you've been focused on the UK market. Is that still is that still where your main focus is? I know, I know, I know. I I I think you spent some time in. Do you spend some time in Asia recently, or do you spend some time in Bangladesh recently? Where, like, was it where where were? Yeah, but Bangladesh we or Sri Lanka. Yeah, we travel so in between um, Sri Lanka, India, and um, so Sri Lanka's been our testing ground. Um, and it's funny because there's a lot of companies that go there to test. It's like a little microcosm of a larger country where you have access to all the key networks and etc. Um, so, and we built our early team there that has exceeded my wildest expectations. We have an office there. We've got an incredible team of um, five or six people there. And the company wouldn't be where it is had it not been for the role that that country played and the team played there. Yeah. It's our testing ground to build the tech, um, to figure out large things about the company. Mm. And... As we figured out so many of those answers, it's now letting us be able to sell and deliver much more efficiently in this part of the world, where mm. the contract size is much larger mm-hmm. and it's easier to sell. It's easier to make a business case to on why um, someone in C-suite needs this in their supply chain. So Sri Lanka will stay as a, uh, uh, an incredible testing bed. We have early customers there. But in terms of the market that we're going to scale, and really go after is in the UK. There's 250,000 manufacturers in the UK. We're the ninth largest manufacturer in the world. And we've identified about 10,000 industrial manufacturers that we have names and contacts for that we're going to be selling into. We need about 2,000 of those. So about 20% mm. penetration on that 10,000 to build a unicorn. Mm. Okay. So... Looking like on a broader scale, there's a lot of talk. There's been a lot of talk for a few years now around nearshoring, around manufacturing, moving more towards where the demand is. 
um, from India and China to Mexico, for example. Um, how do you see that trend? Like, are we talking here about essentially building new supply chains? And does that then create an opportunity for you to get in at the start and build them correctly rather than trying to fix something that's broken? Like, does that yeah. create that kind of opportunity for you? Everyone is wildly overestimating the levels of nearshoring and reshoring we're going to see. One is that for our most critical industries like semiconductors, mm -hmm. we will see it and it will be funded by government dollars, by huge subsidies. Yeah. And for those critical industries, we're going to see you know, large amounts of nearshoring and reassuring. For everything else, no, we're just not going to see the level that we expect. And the reason is, imagine I'm a head of procurement, a head of mm. supply chain. I'm under pressure from my CFO to have a certain amount of procurement costs. I have option A, where I'm sourcing really cheap from one supplier. I have option B, where now I'm sourcing much more expensively from a more local supplier. Now, I have pressure to remain financially competitive. This is what the companies, they have to remain financially competitive. So when faced with that decision, mm. I, I can tell you that they're not... They're not taking that decision to nearshore and reassure in the way that we think that they would be. The, the industries that are, are heavily subsidized by government. Most other major industries, particularly low-cost industries, mm. they're just not doing it. They're not doing it at the scale that we think that they are. Interesting. Okay. Um, so... We're gonna f we'll, we'll finish off in a second, but like, what do you? What's your plans for the future? Like outside of the obvious, I mean, do you see is Kavita a lifelong project for you? Like, do you want to? It could. I mean, the, the scale of it, it could be. But do you want to be doing this forever? Um, and where will you be satisfied with where you've got it to? Our mission when we started the company was to build machine intelligence to predict and manage supply chain shocks. And we thought it would take about 10 years. Then the breakthroughs in large language models happened. Now we've got a prototype out this week on being able to ask an AI deep questions about your, your supply chain. So the vision has been massively accelerated as a result of a lot of luck and a lot of breakthroughs in the AI world. We, we want to make our impact on this industry. We want to solve this problem, but this won't be a lifelong project. There will be an exit at some point. Um, but you, the goalpost keeps moving. Here's the problem. So if you asked me this three years ago, at what point would you like, um, like to sell? I would have given you a number. And now you ask me now, and then the goalpost just keeps moving. As you make more progress, the goalpost just moves. Yeah, uh, that's the other. That's the other problem. But uh, yeah, I would like to to build multiple companies in my life, solving different problems. This won't be the only yeah. one. Yeah. Good. Um, okay, mate. I thank you for doing this. Um, for what it's worth, I'm incredibly proud of you, and it's great to see you keeping taking steps and leaps and moving forward. You are a credit to 
your family and honestly i think to the uk as well like you're an incredible example of somebody who can come from a quote unquote underprivileged background and achieve great things just through dedication and hard work so i have infinite respect for you um and i wish you nothing but the best continuing to grow this and whatever you choose to do in future so good to talk and um look forward to catching up again soon that means an incredible amount to me chris thank you thanks mate okay um thank you everyone for listening that was renaissance podcast episode eight and we'll see you all again soon thanks,